Right, as you can see on the topic of this sermon, there's plenty of scope here to cause offence. Um, yeah. But we're not to, you know, don't judge it on how offensive it is. Judge it on its truth as according to the Bible. The world finds that judges things on how offensive they are. Truth seems to be irrelevant to the world. But as Christians, we have to judge things by the truth as the Bible gives it. And that doesn't matter how pleasant or unpleasant it is. You know, if we know something is true and are offended by it, then we've got to examine ourselves. Why do we find truth offensive? And it's generally offensive because the truth is exposing something, a darkness in us. Another other thing I just want to say, you cannot present one aspect of God's character and ignore the others. You know, church so often wants to show the love of God but ignore his justice, his holiness. And then I think if you do that, you're misrepresenting God. In fact, if you don't understand his holiness and his justice, you don't, you'll never understand his love. You know, God is one, so all these parts of his character are, are one. And, and so I'm hoping, you know, this turns out a lot longer than I, I normally like to do, but I'm trying to get that balance of, of this topic of hell, justice and salvation. So we'll start with prayer. No children's church might. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word. And your word is truth. Lord, there's many things in it that cause offence because it exposes the darkness in us. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will use these words to work your will in each of our lives. I pray that what I say is representing you rightly and accurately and it's pleasing to you, Lord. So I pray that you would use them how you will, Lord. So we thank you for your mercy and grace and love. So the topic of this today's sermon, Hell, Justice and Salvation, it came about from a conversation I had with a bloke, I was doing a job for him. He said he was a Christian and he, and he certainly seemed to have, a, have had an encounter with Christ of some description. But he struggled with certain things in the Bible and as far as I could tell, he was isolated from the body of Christ. And so he had these unbiblical ideas. Now one of these was that he felt that because God is love, in the end God will forgive everyone and no one will stay in hell. Which I found out later this means this is 
um, called universalism. But I said to him, he had no scriptural basis for that belief. And he agreed, but he said he felt it would be so. When that is actually a dangerous stance to have, to base your eternity on something because you felt it to be so. You had no basis for that. So this got me thinking on the subject of hell. So though it isn't a particularly pleasant subject to preach on, and most try to avoid it, it's an immensely important subject. And though it may be the elephant in the room that everyone tries to avoid, I don't think you can. And the Bible doesn't make sense without it. Jesus spoke of salvation, which means preservation or deliverance from harm, ruin or loss. So there is obviously a need to be saved from something. The gospel of salvation only makes sense if there is something to be, we need to be saved from. If there is no hell, then Jesus died to save us from nothing, which is illogical. You cannot get around the fact that Jesus spoke more of hell than any other person in the Bible did. And he spoke of it as a real place that will have real people in it. And he gave many warnings about avoiding it. In fact, he spoke more on hell than he did on heaven. He spoke often on this because it's obviously important. So it shouldn't be something we avoid because it's unpleasant. And one thing that is clear is that Jesus and all the apostles spoke of a place of eternal destruction, a place separate from God. Many try to soften what is a clear teaching in the Bible to make it less offensive and end up with unbiblical doctrine or they try to ignore the subject. What you get if you take an unbiblical stance on hell is things like universalism, that all are saved in the end. Purgatory, the Roman Catholic belief that you must serve time to pay for your sins, but if relatives give enough to the church, you can get out early, which I think a cynic might suggest that's a good money-making scheme. Or you have in hell, in, in, I don't know how you pronounce that, in hellatism, which is a Seventh-day Adventist belief that in the end all are annihilated and all will totally cease to exist. Many just don't believe hell exists at all, or they try to ignore it and hope they don't go there, and many think it'll be a great big party. So hell and the lake of fire... Jesus gives us one of the clearest glimpses of hell in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. In Luke 16, 19-31 There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fed scumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, 
and desiring to be fed with the crumbs, crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is this great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us, that thou would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that they may that he may testify unto them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So things to be noted in this story. One, it's a real place and it held a real real man. Two, he was conscious and aware. Three, it's a place of torment. Four, there's a clear separation between the righteous and the wicked. Five, there's no coming back. Six, he was there because of his actions in this world. Seven, he was there because of his unbelief of God's word. And eight, he had no hope. If we don't accept the realities of hell, then we won't understand the gospel of God's grace. For the gospel was all about the saving of mankind from eternal destruction. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed and warned about the absolute reality of hell and that is, it is our default destination unless we accept God's way out. Since God is our maker, we rightfully belong to him, and we, his creation, should honour him as such. But if we refuse to acknowledge his sovereignty over us, then we are in rebellion against our rightful king. Because we are made in the image of God, there is a part of us that is eternal, something that is more than the physical that we see. So there must be an eternal destination for the eternal soul of mankind, which means there must be a heaven and a hell. The points I want to make in the sermon are what's the biblical doctrine of hell? Who's it for? Why would a God of love make it, let alone send anyone to it? And how do we escape it?
So what does the Bible say about hell? First and foremost, we must remember that hell and the lake of fire were never intended for man, but for the devil and his angels. In Matthew 25, 41, Then shall we say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, and everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell itself isn't the final destination of the damned but appears more of a holding place for the souls of the condemned until judgment day, when those that are guilty are cast into the lake of fire with hell as well. In Revelations 20, 12, 15. And I saw the dead and small and great stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Second Peter 2.4 For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The lake of fire is for the unbelieving and sinners of all descriptions. But the fearful, um, Revelations 21.8, but the fearful, unbelieving, abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hell is a place of consciousness and torment. Luke 16, 23, 24. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Second Thessalonians 1, 9. Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power? Matthew thirteen fifty. And shall cast them into the furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is Jesus that has the keys to hell. Revelation one eighteen. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Matthew 10, 28. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It is eternal. Matthew 25, 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but righteous unto life eternal. Mark 9, 43 48. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee into, into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. Second Thessalonians 1, 8 9. 
and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's something to avoid at all costs. Matthew 18, 9. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye than rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. You enter it because of unbelief. John 3, 17, 18. For God sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's a payment for sin. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are many ways into it. Matthew 7.13 Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go there in it. It's a place of punishment. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Revelations 14.11 And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. There will be deep regrets. Matthew 13.42 And shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's not God's will that any go there. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slacking concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We are without excuse. Romans 1.20 For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as internal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And finally, there is no coming back once you are there. Hebrews 9.27 And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So in summing up these verses, we see that the damned are fully conscious. It is for eternity. There is no way out. Mankind is without excuse and are there because of not only their sin, but also because they've rejected God's way of redemption. And we see it's not God's will that any should go there. So who is a lake of fire for? When the devil in his pride wanted God's throne, then God had to make a place for him and his rebellious angels. 
separate from God's presence and away from his creation. Hell and the lake of fire was never man's. Man made it his when he allied himself with the devil in his rebellion. And so that place of punishment for the devil and his angels became man's place of punishment. And I think that any place where you're separate from the goodness of God would be hell, and that is what hell is. It's been said that God loves the sinner, but not the sin. But I don't know if I entirely agree with that statement. For it's a sinner that commits a sin, and it's because of the love of those sins that he sins. And he'll not part with them. And it's because of those sins that the sinner is judged and condemned. For their rebellion is judged and condemned for their rebellion. For that is what sin is, and a cast into the lake of fire. See, God's not sitting in heaven having warm fuzzies toward mankind as they kill the unborn, as they corrupt his children, as they worship his creation and yet ignore the creator. As they give honour to every pagan form of idolatry and cast his name out as unclean. He's not having warm fuzzies as they murder and blaspheme, as they do violence against one another and commit every vile sin that the wicked heart of man can devise. He's not having warm fuzzies towards man when he sees that the wickedness of man's heart is great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart are continually evil. Unrepentant sinner, understand this and understand this well. God is not having warm fuzzies towards you as you steal and lie and live immorally, as you lust, covet and hate. As you ignore the one who made you and the great salvation is often you. No, there is no warm fuzzies, nothing but stored up wrath and fiery indignation. Every sin, every corrupt thought and evil desire is noted down and your very words will condemn you. The only reason you aren't judged now is the only reason I was not judged for doing likewise. And that's because it's because of God's great love and mercy. He's withholding his hand of judgment to give you room to repent of your sin. Because of his love, he's giving you the opportunity to escape the wrath to come, to have your sins forgiven and come into his love. Because of God's love, he allowed another to bear his wrath in our place so that we may escape. Because of his love, he made a way of salvation that isn't dependent upon our goodness. You know, this is how God loved the world. How can a just God forgive any sin? All must be paid for, no matter how great or small. Well, if it isn't, then God isn't just. It's not just to ignore sin and wrongdoing. It's because of God's perfect justice that he cannot arbitrarily forgive sin. Justice must be satisfied first. Then mercy can be shown. It's at the cross that God's justice was satisfied so that any that would have a relationship with him can and will be forgiven and will receive mercy. Mercy is said to triumph over justice. But if you will have no part of God then you'll have no part of his mercy. 
There can be no forgiveness. You have put yourself outside of his love, for you have not responded to his love. So you will be condemned, not for the laws you have kept, but for the ones you have broken. Without Christ, there is no pardon. The surety of your guilt is already established, and justice will be served with impartiality. For a just God to be just, he must not allow one sin to go unpunished. And this is the d dilemma that God has with mankind. How do you save the object of his love and still be just? You know, as Charles Spurgeon said, I feel that if God should smite me now without hope or offer a mercy to the lowest hell, I should only have what I have justly deserved. And I feel that if I be not punished for my sins, or if there be not some, um, some plan found by which my sin can be punished in another, I cannot understand how God can be just at all. How shall he be judge of all the earth if he suffers offences to go unpunished? God doesn't strike us down as soon as we commit sin for the simple reason that if he did, none would be saved. But it's because of his forbearance that he gives us room to repent, room to turn from that sin. It's not that he is ignoring that sin. He's withholding judgment to give us the opportunity to repent. But if we, if we refuse to repent, that sin is not ignored. It's all written down, and a full accounting will be had on Justice Day and Judgment Day. Justice delayed is not justice ignored. If man will not receive God's plan of redemption, what is he to do? If man continually refuses God's offer of reconciliation and wants no part of him, Eventually God will grant them their wish and they will be eternally separated from God as are the devil and his angels. So why does God cast anyone into hell? Why do many seem to think it strange that a judge judges? Many think it outrageous that God would condemn anyone to hell. Fear not, there will not be one innocent in hell. All will be there because they richly deserve to be there. The law doesn't condemn the innocent, and innocent have nothing to fear from the law, for the law, law will not harm them. It's the guilty that fear the law and hate the judge who is the authority behind the law. That is why many rant and rave, rant and, rave and hate God, for he is authority behind the law. They accuse him of being unjust for condemning sinners to hell. So whose standard of justice are they using to accuse God of being unjust? <clears throat> Those that condemn God as unjust for condemning sinners to hell do not understand love nor justice and are totally ignorant of full, uh, holiness. For love must allow free will 
and will not force another into a relationship. Justice will not overlook wrongdoing and holiness will not allow unholiness in its presence. But what love will do is to make a way where the unholy wrongdoers can be made right. For the unholy must become holy and that wrongdoing must be paid for so that justice can be satisfied. The wonder isn't that God condemns a sinner to hell. The wonder is that God made a way out for mankind. You know, if God saw man in a predicament and could do something about it and didn't and then judged them, yes, that would be harsh. But it's not harsh to see man in a predicament step in to help them and if man then refuses that help, it's not harsh to judge man for their willful rebellion. It is human nature, if you don't like someone, to dredge up all sorts to make out they're worse than you, so, that, so then in pride you can condemn them. This is what they try to do with God to justify themselves. Make out that God is a villain and they are righteous and condemn him. People hate God because they're trying to justify their own sins. God doesn't have to justify himself. He is God and he is just and will judge accordingly. God is still your judge whether you acknowledge him or not. The way out. If God is love, then surely if something is redeemable, he would do his utmost to save them. And this is how God loved the world. He made a way of escape. He withholds his wrath to give mankind room to repent. He atoned for sin himself. He provided the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He sent his only begotten Son so that whoever will believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's this love of God towards man that provides the way out so man does not have to bear the justice of God. For justice must be satisfied before mercy can be shown. It's in Christ and only in Christ that you can come to God for no other has atoned for your sin. It's not just to pay for sins twice so if we are in Christ, he has paid for our wrongdoings. So then a just God can forgive us without violating his just character. Undoubtedly, it's because of God's love that he provided a way of salvation at his cost. It's not our behaviour that endears us to God, but because we were originally created to be in a relationship with him, that God out of love seeks to bring mankind back into that place they were created for. It's little different to a parent and a child. The parent desires a relationship based on mutual love. But if that child grows and then wants no part of the parent or their ways, then there can be no relationship. They are said to be estranged. I've heard it said that it's not a man's sins that make 
man a sinner, but a man sins because he is a sinner. It's our default nature. It's in our nature to sin, and we see this so clearly in children. I never once had to teach my children how to lie, steal, cheat, fight, or be rebellious. It all comes so naturally to them. If a mummy sinner gets together with a daddy sinner, well, you will get little sinners. Danny and Nick will find this out for themselves with Nariah. You know, I find this actually hard to write because he's such a sweet girl, but I know the heart of man. You know, Nick will never have to say to Nariah, for example, Daughter, I'm going to teach you how to lie and thieve today. She will already instinctively know how to do that but he will have to put an awful lot of effort into teaching her to do that which is good. So this makes a nonsense of those that claim that mankind is basically good. Well, if we were basically good, then we would instinctively do that which is good and right. But because we don't, this shows there's something basically wrong at our heart. So even though our children do wrong, it's our love for them that compels us to correct that which is wrong, even when it costs us. So as with parents who had a love, go to great lengths to correct that which is wrong in their children. So it is with God who had a love, even though he knows the corruption that lies at the heart of mankind, has gone to great lengths to correct that deficiency. But being love, he will not force his will upon us, but desires that we will respond to his love and to allow him to correct that deficiency. For a relationship to be based on love, it must allow the exercise of free will. And as God didn't create us as robots, then we must choose if we want to be in a relationship with him. He has made the first overture of love, and we must decide how we will respond. Another example could be my granddaughter, Nariah. I, as her granddad, have a great love for that child and a great desire to build a relationship with her. But as she gets older, she must decide whether she wants that relationship. But whether she does or not, it does not change the fact of my love for her and my desire to be part of her life. And say she's offended against me somehow, like maybe she broke something or stole something, then then that issue would stand between us. My love for her would in no way be diminished, but there is an issue that is causing the estrangement between us. And it would be from love for her that to restore the relationship, I would be willing to bear the loss. But the offence must be acknowledged so it can be rectified and the relationship restored. My hand would already be stretched out to her. She would have to decide whether she will respond to restore the relationship. And though it would grieve me deeply if she didn't want to be part of my life, it would be because of my love for her that I would have to allow the estrangement of the relationship. 
The desire to be part of your life is already there and always will be. If we who are sinful would be willing to do this for our children and grandchildren, how much more would God, whose love is perfect? You can see the picture I'm painting here. This is how it is with God. He desires a relationship, but we must respond to his love. The love and desire for a relationship is already there, and he has paid the cost for that relationship to be restored. But we must respond to him. He will not force it upon us. It starts with the acknowledgement of the cause of the cause of the estrangement, and that takes humility. It's not only the sin that must be dealt with, but also the corrupt heart that's behind the sin. That corrupt heart of mankind will always find a way to manifest itself. We must understand the sinfulness of our natures and the holiness of God's nature and what a deep chasm there is between the two. This corruption is at the heart of the enmity between God and man and is why we instinctively have a hatred towards God. And this natural enmity is the reason why it is the greatest difficulty that we have in coming to Christ. It is our sin that shows us the unholiness of our hearts and that has caused the break in the relationship and separates us from God. In faith, we must accept this for the sinner can no more comprehend God's holiness than a pig can comprehend cleanliness. Say that again. In faith we must accept our state. For the sinner can no more comprehend God's holiness than a pig can comprehend cleanliness. It's only when we recognise this chasm that we then begin to comprehend the greatness of God's love that he would make a bridge across that separation that a sinner can be made holy. This is no miracle that any man can perform. There's no religious rites that can perform this. No good deeds. Only God can change a sinner to a saint. And it would have to be one of the greatest miracles that God has done. And that he would even want to shows the greatness of his love and mercy. Now, although we can modify and to an extent control our outer behaviour, we can do nothing about the corruption that lies within, and that corruption always finds a way to manifest itself. Left to his own devices, man's sinful nature will come to the fore. This is why one must be born again. The sinner must be given a new heart, and without this miracle of rebirth, none shall enter the kingdom of heaven. The sinner must be given that new heart and that new heart will begin to manifest itself. Jesus not only atoned for our sins on the cross, but also when we come to him, he gives us this new heart and we're born again. 
And without this new heart, we can never change because the underlying issue of the heart must be dealt with. As in the natural, a child grows and their character starts to become apparent. So it is when one is born again of the Spirit. The new nature and character should start to become evident. The beauty of this way of salvation, of being born again, is that the old things are passed away, all things become new. The slate gets wiped clean, all the sins, the failures, the mistakes are all expunged from our record and we can start again and by faith we're no longer prisoners of the past. We can then enter into a relationship with a holy God where he has made us holy by faith in him. It's because God is perfectly just that he must judge the sinner even for the most minor of infractions. It all must be atoned for. But it's because of his love and mercy that compels him to make a way out for the sinner. God gets no pleasure in the destruction of mankind, but it's his will that all would come to repentance and salvation, that all would cross the chasm between the two. And he made a way that it can be possible, but salvation is on his terms, it's not ours. We see God's heart in this, his way of his plan for salvation, his desire for our salvation in Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. We also see Jesus' heart for mankind when he wept over Jerusalem and said, How often I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, but ye would not. It's because ye would not is the reason why a sinner ends up in hell. God doesn't want to have to condemn any, but that all would come to repentance. But because they, they would not, your house we left to you desolate. We know that hell must be dreadful, for we see how seriously that God takes hell and the lengths he's gone to keep mankind from it. And in fact, unless there is an actual real hell and lake of fire, cross makes no sense, and Jesus' warnings are meaningless. I read a book a while ago about an Aussie soldier who was captured by the Germans in the war. And because he was always escaping, eventually the Gestapo got their hands on him and sent him to an extermination camp where he was made to work on a Sonder Commando, removing bodies from the gas chambers and burning them. By some miracle, the German army found out he was there and had him removed to a proper POW camp. Now when this bloke got there, he was in such shock at the horror he witnessed that for two months he couldn't speak a word and he wandered around like a zombie. How do you even describe the inconceivable horror of what he witnessed? And how can we even relate to it? For it is something completely outside of our experience. 
Some people think having their latte the wrong temperature is hell. But I don't think there's much we can experience on this earth that even comes close. Probably what this Aussie experienced would have be as close as you could get. But even in that place he had hope. In hell there will be nothing but abject despair. It's in faith that we accept its reality. We don't have to experience something to know that it's not very nice. We know it must be horrific for Christ to endure the cross to keep us from having to experience it for ourselves. I think we as much struggle to understand the horrors of hell as we struggle to comprehend the glories of heaven. Neither is something we can fully relate to for they are beyond their experience. So it's in faith we accept them and believe what God tells us about them. Redemption. Redemption means the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. The question must be asked, why does God bother with mankind? It isn't because of anything in our behaviour that would endear us to him. Quite the contrary, I would think. But it can only be because there is something that is redeemable about mankind for God to go to such lengths to bring us to salvation. God doesn't try to save the devil or his angels because there is nothing redeemable about them. They're so totally wicked and depraved as to be beyond help, and as such are set for eternal destruction. Sadly, likewise, I think that mankind can also reach this place of being unredeemable. When God has to give up on them, and the only option left to him is destruction. We see this in the flood. Mankind was so wicked that God gave up on them and had to destroy them, saving only Noah and his family. For there was something in them that was redeemable. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah had descended into such depravity that God's only option was to remove any that were redeemable and destroy the rest. We see this also in Israel, where they had descended into such levels of rebellion that he had to bring judgment upon them. The question must be asked, and a fearful one it is, how close is mankind approaching that place where they become unredeemable and must be judged? Is God's goodness and love for that poor sorrowful sinner so trapped in sin that they can't even see their own plight, and that is destined for eternal destruction that compelled God to act? to look past the pitifulness of the poor wretch and to be able to see what that sinner could become if they would but reach out to the hand that is already extended to them. It's only love that can see past the depravity and wickedness and see the potential. And that is why God seeks to restore mankind, for he can see that the potential if they would turn to him. Because there is something in man that is redeemable, that is why God has gone to extraordinary lengths to redeem them. 
God can do something with mankind, for they're not yet totally corrupt. There's still something there that God can change if given the chance, if mankind will allow him. Otherwise, no matter the greatness of God's love, he wouldn't bother as with the devil. There's nothing redeemable about the devil, so he'll eventually be thrown in the lake of fire to cause no more mischief when he has fulfilled God's purposes. Dead dogs get thrown into a hole. There's nothing more you can do with them. All I can say, <coughs> knowing a bit of the history of mankind, is that God must have looked mighty hard to find anything redeemable in mankind. For God is love, and it's love that compels him to try and save what he can. But if a dog is already dead, there's not much point in trying to save it, but to throw it in a hole. But if there's still life in that dog, then in our love and compassion, you would do what you can to save it until there's no hope. Where we reach that point of being a dead dog, I don't know. But I suspect that society as a whole may well be at that point where mankind is beyond hope. But as individuals, there's still hope of redemption. But there will come a time when God will have to remove what he can and judge the rest. Because they, like that proverbial dead dog, are beyond hope and have become unredeemable and have become totally worthless and he can only throw them into a hole. Does mankind get so hardened in sin that they are unredeemable? Do they get to a place where they can not be redeemed? Where there is life, there is hope. But can man get so steeped in sin and rebellion that their hearts are so hardened and poisoned against God that they cannot respond to his love and want no part of him? When their thoughts and desires are so continually evil that they are unredeemable and become, as it were, devils, If there is something redeemable in man, then God, because he is love, will seek to redeem that which is lost. But if that object of his love becomes totally worthless, then there is nothing to love, there is nothing to redeem, there is no relationship to be had, and they cannot respond to his love. So the only option left is to remove them to a place of confinement, separated for eternity from his love. When they become unredeemable, they cannot receive his love and there's nothing left to love. We see this clearly in the flood of Noah. God was grieved he had made men, for they had become so corrupt that they were unredeemable and so were destroyed. Noah and his family being the only ones redeemable, God showed his love in making a way of salvation. For there was something in them that could and did respond to his love. When does man reach that place of being unredeemable? Certainly after death there is nothing but the surety of God's fiery indignation against sinners. And this not only for their sin but probably even more so for the rejection of the way of salvation for loving their sins more than God. Proverbs 29.1 A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken without remedy. 
God cannot allow sin into heaven, for then heaven would be corrupted like the earth. Now I can fully understand this, for if you came around to my house and wandered around inside with your filthy work boots on, you shouldn't be surprised if I throw you out. It doesn't matter how kind I may be, you enter my house and my conditions, and my condition is the filth stays outside. What you do in your house is irrelevant. So it is with a righteous God. We enter on his conditions, and his condition is that the filth stays outside. We must change, he will not. So then he must separate the good from the bad, and the bad must go somewhere. It is quite clear that all have sinned and all are on the wrong side of the chasm and none can cross to the other side except through Christ and that will mean a new heart and a new heart will mean forsaking those sins that we find so attractive yet are so deadly. If God is love then he must have a way out for mankind. His way out is to atone for sin himself but so that he being perfectly just can forgive our sin someone has already paid the price. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in summary, it's a clear biblical teaching that there is a literal hell. It contains literal sinners who for whatever reason refuse God's literal pardon that is in Christ. The simple truth of the gospel is that God can and will forgive all sin of those that seek him through Christ Jesus and who want a relationship with him. John 5.24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. For those that have tasted of God's mercy and grace and have found it good and have received from his hand forgiveness, do not treat this great salvation as common. Hold fast to it and see it as the greatest miracle that God has done. And it is only because of his love that he can see past the, the dross to find that which is redeemable. Whatever trials we must endure in this world, remember this isn't hell, it's not even close. And hell isn't our destination, so the Christian need not fear hell. So hold fast to the great salvation that has been granted to us, and with hope endure what we must until we attain the promise. Because of the cross for those that receive him, he sees us not as sinners, but he sees us as he sees Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness, and that is the beauty of salvation. God takes that which is spoiled and ruined and makes it into a thing of beauty. A sinner becomes a saint. First Thessalonians 5, 9-10 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we just we just thank you for your love, Lord, that could see past our sin, Lord, to that something that you could redeem. Lord, I know not why that so few respond with such a gift, except that their hearts are hardened in sin. But Lord, I thank you that the efforts you've gone to, I thank you for your restrained hand of judgment that has given us all this opportunity to repent. Lord, I pray for those that have received this gift that will never take it lightly. But Lord, we would always receive it. Lord, as a is a display of your, the greatness of your love. And I pray, Father, for those that are still in their sin, Lord, that somehow you'd reach into their lives and they would come to taste of that grace and mercy that is on offer to them, Lord, why they have a chance. For, Lord, your, your wrath your anger against mankind is, is great and we are deserving of it. But your mercy and your love is even greater that you would provide a way out. Lord, we thank you for that. And may you be lifted up and glorified in all the earth. In Jesus' name, Amen.